We're continuing our study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and if you need a catechism, there are ones on the back table there. There's also the outlines that have the um, catechism questions that we're doing today. So we're presently looking at the means of grace in our catechism series, and especially those means of grace, of course, we have learned are the word, sacraments, and prayer. The means of grace are those ordinances which God uses in our lives to convey his saving grace in Jesus Christ to us. So these means are means that connect us to Jesus Christ for both world salvation in every way for initial conversion and then for growth in grace. So we're saved by faith, but how does faith come? It comes by hearing the word of God. So the word of God is a means of grace that God uses, a means to bring salvation in Christ to us. After we're converted, then he continues to use his word in our lives, to work in our lives. We learn of him. We receive the fullness of his promises. We come to understand them in a fuller way. We learn to live in the way that he wants as we hear of his call and his commandments. We saw that we ought to be very diligent in the way that we receive the word of God and that it will only work in us when God works in us by his word. Last week, we began to look at the second primary means of grace, which is the sacraments. Question 91 is the first question about them. And it's interesting, as I pointed out to you at that time, that the catechism actually begins by talking about the, um, not what the, the sacraments are, but how God uses them in our lives. That that's the thing that really matters, isn't it? We may, we may not even always know exactly how a sacrament works, but God uses them. And John Calvin even said that about the Lord's Supper because it's so complicated. How does God actually use the Lord's Supper to strengthen us? He said, um, we just know he does. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's, a good, that's, that's a good point to think about. The, the, the catechism tells us how God makes, it's God that makes them effectual in our lives. So this is a great focus, reminding us that the main reason for getting baptized and coming to the Lord's Supper is, of course, God has commanded these things, but that we might receive benefit and grace through these things. They are means of grace. Just as the main reason for reading God's word is that we might receive God's grace for salvation, both uh, conversion and growth. So let's go ahead and confess question 91, last week's question, together as a congregation. Question 91, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. Last week, I warned you that you must never think that saving grace comes through the mere receiving of a sacrament, as if it is an automatic thing. We looked at 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul warns the Corinthians that people can get baptized and they can feed upon Jesus Christ at the Lord's table and still be dead in their sins. Okay, the blessing is not automatic. It is received only by faith. If we're looking to idols or sin to make us full, we cannot expect to receive any benefit from the sacrament. And that's what he talks about in 1 Corinthians 10. We must turn from our idols, things that we rely on instead of Christ to, make, to, to bring us to glory. We look to Christ to bring us to glory Christ alone to save us. The blessing does not come by mere outward participation in baptism and the supper, 
but only by looking for the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit as we receive them through faith. So they're intended to help us look to Jesus. That's what we talked about. When we come to the Lord's Supper, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be looking to Jesus who was sacrificed to bring blessing to our life. That's what we looked at last week. But of course, we also need to know what a sacrament is. And that's the subject of the question we come to this week, question 92. So please join me now in confessing the answer to this question. Question 92. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, let me just mention that when it says uh, sensible signs, it doesn't mean sensible ones instead of unreasonable ones. It means rather ones that we can perceive with our senses. Okay? Sacraments bring things that we can see, taste, that sort of thing into our purview. So uh, let me explain a couple of things. Overall, this shows that Christ has given you the sacraments, again, to bring his grace to you, to represent his saving benefits. Okay, that's the sign part. To seal them as something that is authorized as truly being from him. And then to actually give these benefits to you when you use the sacraments in faith. Okay, so to apply what is the blessing in your life so that you're actually changed. You should be changed through the sacraments. So he is a gracious Savior who is eager for you to receive his grace. Now, I have chosen a passage for our reading that speaks about the great zeal that the Lord has for us to receive the benefits of his saving grace. Now, interestingly, this is not directly about sacraments. It's actually a passage from Hebrews that we kind of ran over today as we, we looked at the whole book of Hebrews in one sweep. But we'll, we'll look at it a little bit more closely here. Hebrews 5, 12 through 6, 20 is the passage. So if you want to follow along your Bible, starting in Hebrews 5, 12. And this is the word of God. And again, this shows us, as I just want you to think about it as we go through, the zeal that God has to bring blessing to his people, okay, to bring benefits, saving benefits to his people. Hebrews 5.12, the word of God. For though by this time you ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. For this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame." For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is to be rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, 
Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to his heirs of the to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, and that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Thus, this hope we have is an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There we end the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. For our first point this afternoon, I want you to see how zealous God is for his people to trust his promises. He sees to it that every one of his elect people comes to believe so that we can receive his grace through faith. First, God's zeal for us to receive a blessing is shown by the lamentation that is found in verses 5, 12 through 6, 8, that the lamentation that some were not embracing the grace of God. You see how sorrow is expressed that these Hebrews, who should have been teachers by now, were still on spiritual baby food. They were not ready for mature food, as he says in 5.12, and they should have been, because they had not been applying what they already knew. They were not on the solid foundation of Christ with confidence that would enable them to grow and be built up. God is not going to reveal new things to you if you still don't have a foundation from the things that he has already shown you, the basic things. If you're still wavering on those things, you're not ready to learn anything more or to go on. This resistance from them is presented as a very serious problem here. If you're not going to go on in your salvation then it may even show that you've never actually been converted. Such was the case with some of them. People can make a profession. It doesn't mean they're converted. They can say, I believe. They can enter into the covenant and go through the signs and all those things. It doesn't mean that they have genuine faith. He laments that some of these Hebrew Christians were like the ones in the parable of the sower who came eagerly and professed their faith, but then drew back when persecution and opposition came. Or because of temptations and lusts in the world, their hearts were drawn away so that the world, as it were, stole their soul. As we saw last week, they were baptized, they professed their faith, they came to the Lord's table, but in doing those things, they never really came to Jesus Christ. They only had the outward signs without the substance. In verse 4 through 6, it says that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance after they have been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and even been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Not that they were ever born again. If a person is born again, then the seed will remain in them and they cannot turn away because God will keep them. They're they're among God's elect people. It's not that, but that they had the Spirit who is working in the Word that was in the church and who is working in the church as a whole, as a, as a body, even using even some of these ones to edify other people. Judas, I'm sure, did miracles. If Judas hadn't done miracles, you can be sure that the other disciples would have said, we were casting out demons and Judas couldn't do it, or whatever. They, they would have been very quick to point that out. And not only that, but Judas, who had a, a heart of unbelief, was able to even teach and, and speak God's word. So these are terrifying words. They have rejected the grace of God, and it says they crucify Christ all over again. It's like this. First, they rejected their Messiah when he came. I'm talking about these Hebrew Christians here. 
the professing Christians, then they repented outwardly and became Christians outwardly. But when temptation or trials came because of him, they rejected him again. In effect, they crucified him a second time, all over again. That's what people do when they reject Christ after they have been fully enlightened and then turn away, knowing exactly what they're doing. In verse 7 and 8, they're described as a farmer's field that has been cultivated and that has received rain and good seed, but ended up only bringing forth thorns and briars. There was no life there. It was fit, it says, only to be burned. This had happened with some of these Hebrew Christians. They had left the faith because they had never had faith. As it says in the epistle of 1 John, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. This is a lamentation then, not only of the anonymous author of Hebrews, the one who wrote Hebrews, but also of the Lord, who by his spirit inspired these words. It reminds us here of the free offer of the gospel of our Lord and Savior. The Lord sincerely calls us to take the gospel to all people and to plead with them in his name to receive the gospel, to come and believe and repent and have life. He promises that everyone who does so, anyone who does so, will surely be saved. The fact that many do not is their own fault because of their own sin and their own hardness and their own stubbornness. It is their own rebellion that causes them to reject the offer that is given to them. Though this is true, those who do come, we are told plainly in Scripture again and again, have no grounds of boasting. Now, our goal with, our, uh, with Reformed teaching is for everything to be true to Scripture. We don't have to figure out how it fits together necessarily, but to believe what has been spoken. And this is equally true. The Lord makes it clear that the only reason that we came if we have come is because He drew us in ways that we could not resist. Because if it had been up to us, we would have all resisted and hardened our hearts to the gospel. We're just as stubborn as anyone else. And so besides calling us and convicting us by His Spirit, which He may do to one who's never, who's never converted, God's Spirit also works in such a way that we can't refuse, that we come to Him. We're not forced against our will, but we're transformed by the powerful working of God's Spirit so that we are then made willing. Titus 3.5 spells it out. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Because of this work that goes beyond the, this working of God's spirit that goes beyond the sincere offer of the gospel, there are many of these Hebrew believers who did not reject Christ. And Paul says that to them later, you know, that uh, persuaded of better things of you. So while there is this lamentation in 5.12 through 6.8, there is also an expectation in 6.9 through 12 that those who truly belong to Christ, those who have genuinely come to him in saving faith, will embrace his saving grace. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany or go along with true salvation. And then he speaks about the fruit of salvation that is evident in their lives. What showed that they were true believers? That despite for them the persecutions that came to the Hebrew Christian community, that they have continued in love and service, that they serve each other as believers, that they show up in prison to feed their brothers and sisters who have been in prison in peril to their own lives because they believe. And the other ones say, we'll have no part of this. And their true colors come out and they go their own ways, showing that they never had 
true salvation. They don't have what accompanies salvation. You understand, of course, that he's not saying that they will be saved because they did these good works. That would be silly. Of course not. Our works are never adequate to, to, for us to, to commend us to God. But rather that these good works are a clear evidence that they are saved, that there is life in them from God, that they're going on in the grace of God. It shows the grace of God working in them. There are good reasons then to be confident about them because they have this fruit in their lives. Fruit is evidence that they are feeding on God's grace. If you are sluggish about serving God, how do you know that you know him? Truth is you don't. Verse 11 and 12 show that those who inherit the promises of God are not sluggish about the service of God. These verses say, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What about those that are sluggish and that that do not imitate those who through faith inherit the promises? They don't inherit the promises. God's promise of new life is, is seen in these ones, you see, who continue in the grace of God. And so it's expected, if the grace of God is seen, that they will continue in that grace. It's not going to go away. It's, it's there. Next, we're told how the Lord has gone all out to assure his people that his grace is there for them. Something he wants us to be certain about. He, because of his love for us, wants to make his grace certain to us so that we can lay hold of it, as it later says, like an anchor something that really holds us in. In Hebrews 6, 13 through 18, it explains how God not only told Abraham that he would bless him and multiply him. That should have been enough, right? God says, I'm going to bless you. That's, that's enough. That's all you need to know. But how he, the Lord himself, also swore that he would bless him. Why did he do the extra thing? See, let me just give you a little peek of what I'm going toward. Why would he add sacraments to his word of promise? Why did he here with Abraham add swearing to just telling him, I'm going to bless you? We humans swear because we're not reliable. (laughs) Swearing is needed because we say stuff and we make promises that we don't really mean. So we have to, when we really mean it, we have to swear uh, the, the kind of swearing in view here is the kind that they did in the ancient world as well when they actually bound themselves to die if they did not do what they promised. So it was a very solemn vow that was made. They cut an animal in two, like we read about in Genesis 15, and, or several animals, and then passed between the parts. If you were making a covenant with someone, you'd make promises, and then you'd pass between the parts. And what were you doing? Why did you do that? Because you were saying to the Lord, if I don't mean what I say and I don't do what I say, cut me in pieces like, like this, um, these animals. It's a way of assuring the person that they were swearing to that they would keep their word. The Lord does not have this problem of being unreliable. Yet he swore to Abraham and to all of us in this very manner. Why did he do that? He appeared as a burning torch as is recorded in Genesis 15, 17, and he passed between the divided parts of the animal. God did that to make it clear that he really would bless us. Because you remember Abraham, it was hard for Abraham. Here he was, a man in the world, like, God, I don't have any children. What are you going to do? How are you going to bless me and bless me through my seed? I don't even have any children. Should it be my servant? Or how, how is this going to... And God said, Abraham, I'm going to do this. And he swore... God did that to make it clear that he really would bless him. He swore an oath. He had to swear in his own name because there was no one greater than God to hold him to what he promised. So he took a vow in his own name. When we understand that, in fact, God did did have to die in order to keep the promise that he made to Abraham, it makes this swearing all the more meaningful. How could God die, right? The Lord was so serious about saving us that he actually did curse himself. 
His only Son, the Son of God, in order to save us. His salvation was such a great matter, He had to do this great work for us. That He knew that, uh, that, that, he knew that we might doubt Him. And so, He actually, now we have an even greater verification. Abraham had God saying, I'm going to bless you or I'll die. We have him going so far as taking that curse and dying in order to bless us. So we have even more reason to be sure now that God will bless us than Abraham did. So God swore, though, for this reason, to make his promise certain to us so that we would believe it without wavering. Look at verse 17 and 18. Thus God, determining or purposing, you could say, to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, okay, the people that were going to receive his blessing of salvation. Let me start again. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability, unchanging nature of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or certainty in, in this case, who, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us or, or strong comfort in the promises. The, the two things are first, that God does not lie. And secondly, in the, he doesn't lie in the first place. And secondly, that he added an oath to his promise to make it sure. An oath of malediction, of bringing being torn apart if he didn't do what he said. And so also that the elect people would have additional grounds for hope that despite their own wickedness and unworthiness and despite what had to be done for them to save them, God even sending his son to the cross, he was surely absolutely going to do it. He does not want a single one of us to fail to embrace his grace, to fail to come to him for his promised salvation. He is so kind to us. He goes out of his way to make it certain to us. And now that Jesus has come and gone before his father in heaven as our representative and has borne the curse for us, as I said before, we have even more reason to be certain This hope is, as verse 19 says, an anchor to our souls, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil where God is, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' acceptance after having offered himself for us is, is like an anchor, it's like a tether to, between our faith to, to lay hold of God and His promise to us through Christ. So do you see how earnest, okay, we looked at all that, to see how earnest our gracious Heavenly Father is to make, absolutely, make us absolutely sure of what He has promised, of His promised grace to save us. He goes all out to make sure that we are confident in him so that we will come to him confidently and hold on to the grace that is promised to uh, to true faith. That is his aim. And now I want to show you that the sacraments have been given as an additional aid to you in embracing his saving grace. God doesn't just tell us what he's going to do. He confirms it with sacraments. I mentioned to you before that they're kind of like a a buttress that's put on a wall to to give additional support to our faith, an additional aid to us beyond his promise, beyond his oath. They help to make his salvation even more certain to us if we believe. Isn't it remarkable to think that after giving us so much to assist us already, that he ministers to our weakness and gives us even more. This very, very gracious. He said, well, why don't you believe me? You should trust me. I've, I've proven myself. Why don't you just trust me? He gives us additional help. 
The sacraments are especially helpful to us. They serve three functions. They're listed there in our catechism for us. First, they are signs to display His gracious work to our senses. We're going to look at these, expand on these. Second, they are seals by which He solemnly attests that He is the one who does the saving so that we will rest in Him confidently and look to Him. And third, they are instruments by which He actually conveys or applies saving grace to us. He carries out His saving work when we come by faith. So let's look at each of these. First, that they are signs that He uses to display His gracious work to our senses. Sensible signs. He does this because we are creatures that are used to relying on our senses. We rely on our senses all the time. I have to see it. You know, Thomas said, unless I see and put my hand, you know, that, that kind of a thing. Yet when God works in us to save us, it's not something we can discern with our senses, is it? I mean, when your sins are forgiven, there's not a visible change in your appearance. You don't change colors or your physical blemishes don't disappear from you, from you somehow. Likewise, when you're born of the Spirit and get a new heart, you can't even get a, 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 a diagnostic machine and look inside and, and see that there's a new heart there, that the heart's changed. It's not changed like that. It's, it, it's, uh, it, it's not something that you can have a surgeon look inside and, and see, if, did I actually get a new heart or not? There's nothing visible about it. And again, when God nourishes you so that you can grow in His grace and become more holy and more obedient to Him, it's not as if, as it is when you receive nourishment for your body and you know you can uh, you you can tell a difference you drink the water you receive refreshment from it when you're thirsty you eat it satisfies your hunger you know that you have received there's something sensory there these are all things so so yes results can be seen you can see the change in your life and the bible tells us that we should look at that we just saw that in uh in hebrews that how do you know? Because of how you, you, the grace of God has been operative in your life before. But you cannot see God actually applying his gracious salvation to you. You don't see him forgiving you in some kind of visible manifestation, changing the heart and nourishing you to live a holy life of trusting obedience. These are the things that he represents to you in the sacraments. See, see how that works? That's why he's given them to us. Think about each sacrament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. With baptism, he shows you with water that he, what he does when you first come to him for salvation. What does he do? Washes away your sin. Washes in two ways. He washes away your guilt so that your sin is no longer held against you. You have a complete pardon. And he washes away the sin in your heart, the sin that keeps you from coming to God with repentance and faith. When salvation is offered to you, it's when he baptizes with his spirit, he washes the washing of regeneration that we read about earlier. This is the promise of the new birth or of regeneration. It's a complete bath. So when we come to his kingdom, that's the first thing he does. Gives us a bath at the door. I wash you. I wash you. You can't wash yourself. I wash you. Both of these ways of cleansing us or washing us are mentioned when God promised to baptize us in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. He's talking about promises of the new covenant. Verse 25 begins with the overall promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. This is definitely talking about baptism, which was always done by sprinkling of clean water, a ceremonial washing. The Jews had many baptisms, but this is the baptism of the New Testament that God promises. And the rest of verse 25, listen to what he says. This is Ezekiel 36, 25. He goes on to promise the first way of cleansing them from the guilt. Okay? He says, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. And from all your idols. He's going to forgive them for worshiping their idols. And in verse 26 and 27, the promise of a renewed heart is given. The promise that he will wash our corruption away so that we will come and serve him 
henceforth. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments to do them. You can't see God doing those things. And so he gives you a sign to symbolize that washing so that you can see the sign. And then it's to increase your confidence. You can't see the invisible work of the spirit. And so he gives you a visible representation. Okay, and then there is the second sacrament, the Lord's Supper. After we have come to Christ, God promises to nourish us through Christ who is crucified. But we can't see him feeding us. I mean, not at all. You can't really see physical nourishment happening when you eat. I was just talking about how you can sense it somewhat. But you know you're eating and that, that the food nourishes you. There's nothing to see like that when God nourishes us in a spiritual way. So he has given us the supper to visibly make visible to us that feeding that we do upon Christ. Not the nourishing, but in particular, the feeding that is for our spiritual nourishment. So this is what is promised to us by the minister who administers the Lord's Supper at the Lord's Supper. We look at what Christ has done. Okay, his body and blood given for us. We remember him and how he was crucified for us. Body broken, blood shed, okay, by the bread and the wine. And we eat and drink. We eat and drink it to show that we have communion. We have fellowship. We have spiritual nourishment from Christ's body and blood so that we can keep on growing. Lord, baptism is about our initial coming. The Lord's Supper is about our ongoing growth. And so it's set before us that he is still working in us. And like I talked about today, when we came to the Lord's table, we come and we see that, that we need Christ. We need to be strengthened. We look to him and he visibly shows us, I am the one who feeds you. Christ crucified nourishes you as you look to him for nourishment. So we eat and drink to show that we have communion and sacrifice that we might keep on growing. These sacraments are especially useful to us today. Why do I say that? I say that because a popular philosophy of our day erroneously suggests that there are two realms. Okay? There is the real world where you live everyday life, and then there is the realm of faith, which is personal and separate. It is the meaning that each person gives to everything. Okay, so this is a, a worldly philosophy. And these two realms rarely meet. Okay, those who hold this view don't expect God to actually work in their lives. Okay, they're, 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 they have this, these, these ideas and things. Faith is more like inspiration to get you going than any expect, expectation that God is actually tangibly at work in the world. Too often Christians today buy in at least somewhat to this philosophy. We don't expect God to do very much in the world or in our lives. Or we look for him to work by giving us miracles maybe. You have Christians who want to bring back the signs that were given in the apostles' day. But the sacraments come to rescue to the rescue to tell us first that God is working, and then how we should expect him to work. What we should expect him to do. Baptism shows us that he reaches into the world to cleanse us from our sins through Jesus Christ, to pardon us of our guilt, and to give us a new heart, the washing of regeneration. Baptism sets that forth to us visibly. And the Lord's Supper teaches us to look to God to nourish us through Jesus who was crucified. It teaches us that we should expect to grow by his grace. So if you're not looking for God to work in those ways, that needs to change. If you just want him to show himself with miracles and things like that, but you're not looking for the ways that he primarily works in our lives, which are these ways 
then you need to look to him. You need to change and start looking to him for that. The sacraments draw you in to look for him to work in these ways. Remember Hebrews 6, 11 through 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the sacraments represent God's work in the world through signs so that we will trust him to work in these ways. Okay, this washing and this nourishing. But the sacraments are not only signs to make God's work visible. Okay, the second thing that I mentioned is that the sacraments are seals by which he solemnly attests to his gracious work in each one of us. Seals are used to show that something is from a recognized authority. When I went to a lawyer a number of years ago, I need need to go again actually, but (laughs) when I went to get my will done, the lawyer had a seal that he affixed to the document to show that it was officially done by a lawyer. When you graduate from high school or university, you get a diploma and it has a seal of the university to show that they, by their authority, conferred that degree upon you, that it was officially issued and you were recognized as a a graduate. Kings and nations have been using seals from very ancient times. We see this all the way back in Genesis with Judah, who had his signet ring and things like that that he would use. They are still used today. The Lord has given us baptism and the Lord's Supper as seals. We're told of a parallel um, sacrament of, in, uh, of initiation and that circumcision is a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. So they attest to us to the forgiveness and new life and growth and grace that these come from God, authoritatively from God. It's not the work of men, it's the work of God through Christ. This is meant to give you confidence. You are to look at your baptism, your baptism and the baptism of others. And you're to say, God has officially testified by this sign that washing away of sin is his work. And you are to look to the Lord's Supper and say, God has officially testified by this sign that he nourishes his people. You see, it's not, I didn't come up with the idea that we would do baptism or some, some man didn't come up with the idea that we would do baptism and Lord's Supper to represent this. Hey, we could represent this in this way. No, God is the one. Only God can institute a sacrament. So therefore, God is officially testified of this. I can be sure of him. This is not a symbol that man appointed. This is a symbol that God appointed. He is verifying that he is at work in you in these ways. It is a seal not of man, but of God. Now you can see how God uses signs and seals in the Old Testament, or signs as seals in the Old Testament. For example, when he promised that he would never send a global flood like he did in the day of Noah, what did he do? He gave a sign of the rainbow to confirm the promise, saying, Genesis 9, 13, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and all the and the earth. It was not a sign that Noah devised. Noah didn't say, I'm going to look at the rainbow. I'm going to remember what God promised to me. But it was a sign that God came up with. It was a seal that the promise of no more global flood was from him. God tells us, To know that when we see the sign. He sees it. We we need to know that not only do we see it, but he also sees it and remembers his promise. He presents it as a sign to him. God doesn't need a sign to remind. Why does he do? He does it for our sake. This is my testimony to you that I am affirming to you that I'm not going to send a global flood. For example, with the rainbow, he says, Genesis 9, 16, the rainbow shall be in the cloud and I, God speaking, I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. What an encouragement it is to think that when you receive the sign of the Lord's Supper and remember what God has promised, God sees you partaking and he himself remembers the promise that he made in Christ. 
He's looking on with delight, seeing you coming in faith, looking to him for what he has promised. And he avows that to you as you come. He's assuring and testifying to you in that way. He remembers that he has testified that he will nourish us. So you see, this is to, again, instill your confidence that God is at work in your life so that you won't despair and say, oh, oh, how can God has promised that he's going to work. Okay, so the sacraments are signs and seals of God's promise, officially showing us that when we come to Christ in faith, God washes away our sin spiritual and spiritually nourishes us so we can grow. But now I want to look at a third thing that they are. Third, they are actually instruments by which he conveys or applies his saving work to us when we come by faith. In other words, when you come to the Lord's Supper, it's not only a sign that God sometimes nourishes you through Christ's sacrifice whenever he pleases. And of course, it's true that he does. He doesn't only nourish you when you come to the Lord's Supper, but coming to the table, it is also a time when you ought to look to him to nourish you right then and there. Like we talked about today, every time we hear a sermon, when we hear our our morning in our morning worship, we hear a sermon. we, We need to actually respond to that. We need to say, God, give me the grace that was set forth in this in this message or give me the obedience that I'm called to in this message. We look to him to work in us and to and to do that. So while you're at the table eating the bread and drinking the wine, you look to him to work in your life. You should ask God to refresh you in his grace or refresh his grace to you. He could say to give you a fresh supply of assurance and strength to serve him right then and there to make the foundation more solid to you. Well, you don't really make the foundation more solid, but to make you your grip on that foundation, your faith stronger. Again, I would point out to you 1 Corinthians ten sixteen through 17, where it says we looked at this last week, the cup of blessing, which we bless. Is it not the communion, participation, a sharing, a partaking of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. There is a real partaking of Christ that occurs, a partaking of Christ that changes your life, that has an effect in you. Expect God to work then when you come to the table. Pray that he will work. Look to him and thank him if he does. Now, I would encourage you even to study the larger catechism about this. It has questions about what we do before, should do before we come to the Lord's table, what we should do while we're at the Lord's table, what we should do after we go away from the Lord's table. And all of it is about looking to him to work. And if he hasn't worked, if we reflect afterward and we feel God hasn't worked, then we need to lament that and we need to ask him to have mercy and to, to work in us in the future. The sacraments are not empty signs. They're signs of the real action of God in his people's lives. He didn't just give us a, a show thing, a sign that doesn't have, it's like a, if you were hungry and there's a sign for, for the McDonald's restaurant and you go along and you say, oh, I'm so hungry, I think I could even eat McDonald's. And you, you go off on the exit and then there's nothing there. It's an empty sign. God's signs are not like that. There's, there's real things that he gives us. They truly are a means of grace that God uses to bring fresh grace into our lives. Now, baptism is a little different, but it's also much the same. It's different because it refers to grace that is given at one point in your life if you are, in fact, one of God's elect. It represents the complete forgiveness of sins that we receive when we're first brought to Christ. And it represents the new birth, which is a one-time event where the Holy Spirit brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That only happens once in a person's life. It may be that you were baptized before or after God did that work. The sign is a sign of that work, whether it happened before, at, or after baptism. Baptism gives you a picture of the washing that God does 
so that you can rest in him as the one who gave you spiritual life. You can rest in him for the rest of your life based on that sign that he's given you. You look back at that sign and say, this is what God does in his people. The change is not necessarily tied then to the moment of administration when the sacrament is administered. But at the same time, when we are presenting our children for baptism or if we are getting baptized as adults, we should look to God to actually give blessing by the blessing represented by the sign at the time the baptism is done. We cry out to him and say, Lord, wash me if I'm coming to Christ or Lord, wash this child. We're asking him to do it. The Bible says that we're to call upon the name of the Lord and we do that by baptism. We are placing ourselves into his hands. This is talking about an adult here that comes to to see that Christ is the way of salvation. He comes and says, Lord, wash me as you have promised to do through faith in Jesus Christ. Or we're placing our children into his hands saying, Lord, you have to wash them. You have to change their heart. You have to do this work. The scripture teaches us to look at baptism this way. For example, when the crowd at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is told that they crucified their Messiah. And they cry out and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Some people are troubled by what it says here. We shouldn't be troubled by it. Peter does not tell them, come forward and pray a prayer. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He tells them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, for forgiveness. Baptism involves a prayer. It involves calling upon the name of the Lord. It involves looking to God in faith to wash us. And he says that in doing that, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the promise of the new birth. John the baptizer said, I baptize you with water. I do the sign. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He does the the real deal. So you're coming to him for salvation. You're saying, Lord, I am a sinner. Wash me, save me, cleanse me. We have the same thing with Paul. When Paul was converted, when he realizes that Christ is the Savior, he is told, as it says in Acts twenty-two sixteen, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So you see, this is where God has given us this outward sign, even at our conversion, to help us to realize what God is doing or what God has done. You must not look at this in a wooden way. Okay, this is important too. Don't look at it in a wooden way. If you are not sincere at the time of your baptism, you need to be baptized again to receive the grace of God that was promised in baptism. You don't have to come and say, oh, I didn't do it right before, so I've got to come before again, and maybe this time I'll be sincere. You, you just need to repent of your insincerity. You already have the sign. There's nothing wrong with the sign. There's something wrong with you being insincere. Well, if you were insincere, fix that. Fix that right, right then and there and say, Lord, I am now trusting you as the one who washes away my guilt and the one who gives me a new heart, who washes my heart and forgive me and give me your spirit. You complete your baptism, as it were, at that time. Could have been baptized insincerely, but you complete that later on in your life. So it's not tied to the moment of administration necessarily. There was nothing wrong with the sign again. The problem was with you. As soon as you deal with the insincerity and the, the believing begins, then the sign is a true sign of blessing. You receive the blessing. Nor, okay, so not a wooden way like that. Nor does what I'm saying here about the sign and baptism mean that a person cannot be saved without baptism. Ordinarily, a person cannot be saved without baptism. If a person refuses to be baptized, it's an indication that he doesn't really know the Lord. I mean, they, but if they're unable to be baptized for some reason, after they have come to see their need of Christ and have turned to him to follow him, you could be, um, you know, in, your, uh, in a prison cell somewhere, no one to baptize you or whatever. God is certainly able to save them without the outward sign. No problem. 
Just last week, we saw that with the thief on the cross, didn't we? That he was on the cross. He couldn't, couldn't go and be baptized somewhere. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise because he believed. And that's faith is what connects us to our Savior. But you see, baptism, like I say, it's a buttress. It's an extra help to us in connecting us to our Savior. It, it supports that and it enhances our, our calling on the name of the Lord. Ordinarily, the Lord is especially pleased to work through this sign. That's the, um, the, the way for, for him. That's the normal way for us to come to him. Just as he uses the word and prayer as a means to bring his grace to us, he also uses the sacraments. Why should it be strange that he would use prayer that we, we say, you know, we, we need to trust in the Lord Jesus and we pray and say, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Pray and say, oh, you're just trusting in your prayer. No, you're trusting in the Lord. You're calling on the Lord. Same thing with baptism. Repent and be baptized. Wash away your sins. I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm trusting in the Lord who promises to, um, to wash me. So be encouraged. Again, what's God's agenda? What's his goal here with the sacraments? His goal is to get his saving grace to us. He employs his spirit to work faith and repentance in us. He gives us his word with the promises. He gives us sacraments and he gives us prayer is a means through which the spirit works. The sacraments are simply an additional way of getting his saving work to us by giving his work a visible representation that we can connect with by faith. The right way for the sacraments to be done is with the word of institution and promise, explaining how the sacrament points us to Christ. If there's no word to tell us that Christ said, this is my body and this is my blood that was shed for your mission, if there's no word in the sacrament, the sacrament was not done properly. It shouldn't have been done at all. You don't just come and say, oh, oh, this is a sacramental bread. Here, have it to someone like outside or something like that. We need to be there hearing the word of institution. But when they are received, when, when you receive them in faith, we receive what is signified and sealed. It's applied to us. Thanks be to God for his kindness. We should look earnestly and expectantly for him to work in our lives. We come to the table and say, Lord, you do your work. Please stand and let's, uh, let's, let's give thanks. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Oh, Lord, we praise you that when we come to you in the sacraments that you do actually convey what is represented there. And, Father, that we can trust you that you, you do a washing of our guilt. You do a washing of our heart regenerating our heart and taking away our stony heart. And you do a, a nourishing of our, of our spirit, of nourishing of us, so that we can continue in your grace and so that we can grow and we can become more and more like Christ, more and more what you've called us to be, that his work goes on in us. It continues in us. And we pray, Lord, that whenever we do, each Lord's Day, when we come to the Lord's table, that we would be looking to you, O Lord, to do, to do the work that is signified there. When we've heard the word preached, we know, Lord, that yes, we can pray and we can call on your name, but we thank you that we have this additional help that you have given to us because you are so gracious and merciful to your people. You know our weakness. You know that we need these assurances because our faith wavers and we need all the help that we can get. And Father, if our faith is insecure and uncertain, it is our own fault. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe, to trust, for you have made these things very, very clear to us in your mercy. Oh, Lord, do your work, Lord. Work in us through and through, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's sing Psalm 120. Let me, let me mention before I do pronounce the benediction. Why do we do this benediction thing? Because God made a promise that when his name was put upon his people or when the benediction was pronounced that he would put his name upon his people to bless them. 
So we look for him also in the benediction to actually receive blessing from God as we go forth to serve him from this place. We look to God to actually work. And the reason we still do that in the New Testament is because almost every epistle that is written has a benediction attached to it in the New Testament that the apostle or whoever wrote the epistle attached to it. So we see that as something that continues in the in the new covenant that was practiced in the old covenant. So with faith, receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.